Hello and welcome to episode 67 of the Synergen Leadership Podcast. For those of you who are listening for the first time, my name is Julian Carl and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Synergen Group. I'm passionate about all things leadership and management, so passionate in fact that I decided to start a podcast about it and here we are in season two and my purpose for the podcast continues to be the same, to raise the standard of leadership. In today's show, I speak with Daryl Hardidge, who is the author of The Ten Commandments of Client Appreciation. As founder and CEO of Melbourne-based Aguity, Daryl is passionate about working with businesses who are committed to providing exceptional client service. These often have multiple sites, such as dealerships, franchises, company stores and sales teams, or products that want to implement and benchmark loyalty indicators and define their ultimate client experience process. It's the secret weapon to mastering client appreciation. Security enables companies to define the unique point of difference from an independent market perspective, creating a new set of KPIs that connect team engagement, customer loyalty, and revenue into one number focus that everyone in the company understands and is committed to. Their appreciation certified team workshops are unique and bespoke, and they look to engage all areas of the business in the game of 10 out of 10 service excellence and ensure they know clearly their individual responsibilities to delivering beyond expectations. Now, during the course of the conversation, we explored Daryl's book in great detail. I start by asking Daryl why did he decide to write this book. We speak about the idea of client appreciation and what it really means and the impact it has on both customer and supplier. We explore the idea of the first 15% and how Daryl has taken learnings from some of the lean Six Sigma methodologies. And I finish the interview by asking Daryl about how to avoid the price trap. So keep listening and as always, would really like to hear your thoughts about our interview with Daryl Hardidge, author of The Ten Commandments of Client Appreciation. Happy listening. Welcome to the Synergen Leadership Podcast with Julian Carl. Julian returns in 2019 with weekly conversations with leaders and authors from Australia and around the world, giving you the opportunity to share in their journey and learn from their expertise and knowledge. Julian also shares some of the tools and techniques he uses as a leader, mentor and facilitator, helping you to build your leadership capability and improve your confidence as a leader. Welcome, Daryl, to the Synergy and Leadership Podcast. Really appreciate you taking the time to be a part of it so that the listeners have a bit of an idea of who you are. Who is Daryl Hardidge? Thanks, Julian. Great to be here. Uh, look, good question. You don't often get asked that question straight up. But uh, for me, I guess my big thing is I have always loved business, loved the game of business. And uh, I've enjoyed studying what makes a great business and we all get the experience as a consumer of an average one and getting ripped off and what have you. But I've been using um, some good training over the years and one of the mentors I've had that uh, is one of the few people in the world that work with Buckminster Fuller. And he has a principle of business that I love. And it is from his life's work when he looked at what is business about? What is the one thing that business is about? And he came to the conclusion, this is last century, that the one thing business is about is adding value. And so uh, when I when I got that clarity on that, I thought that's that's the whole thing I'm doing with my company. You know, I love to work with companies that genuinely have a commitment to adding value to their market because they're usually profitable and effective and good integrity and good leadership and so on. And uh, for me, that's that's the space that I really enjoy working in. It's, it's, it's a delight to work with companies that have just a true 
set of values and commitments to delivering value to their market. So we're here today to talk about this book, and it's one of my favourite topics, which is customer. So why did you decide to write The Ten Commandments of Client Appreciation? It came about from clients who uh, have been through my workshops. I run a lot of workshops, and I run uh, distinctions on what it is that creates brilliant service experiences and what it is that creates the highest degree of adding value and client engagement. And it just was asked one too many times effectively and I had a very compelling person one day that wanted me to put all the all of my workshop into a into a content that they could share with their team around the country. And uh, that sort of triggered it to think it's time to sit down and do it. So I'm gonna gonna read a, a quick excerpt to uh, start us off. While many businesses strive for satisfaction, those reaching for appreciation are experiencing extreme client loyalty, client referrals, and repeat spending. It isn't luck or the economy to credit for leading businesses being where they are. It is carefully engineered processes covering all parts of the operation that are geared towards achieving client appreciation. The Ten Commandments of Client Appreciation are for every business and are the foundations for fostering an appreciative client base. So I'm going to dig deep into the book, but at a very high level, what is this idea of client appreciation? Client appreciation basically is founded upon uh, the distinction of quality that was created by W. Edwards Deming, who was the guy who created the quality system of Japan, Toyota, Honda, Canon. And when I was doing some some study on his work, uh, I saw the distinction of quality and the distinction of quality is maximum client appreciation over a minimum of variation. And I'd been for a long time trying to discover what is the way to define excellence above satisfaction because even the biggest research companies in Australia and in the world still issue the annual customer satisfaction award. So they're basically saying here's, here's the award for being the best average because satisfaction is really giving you just what you paid for. And you know, I liken it to when you see uh, a billboard that might say 100% satisfaction guarantee. My first thought is, well, as opposed to what? You're going to be happy with 85% satisfaction guarantee? I mean, 100% satisfaction guarantee is the only thing you're going to accept. Otherwise, you're not happy. So the whole market keeps talking about satisfaction as the objective. And the data I have in my company, you know, we've made over half a million phone calls now, and I've got so much clear evidence that says that if you give people satisfaction, which is an 8 out of 10, when you look at repeat business, you look at wallet share, you look at referrals, it is nowhere near what it is that those that give a 10 out of 10 score. And so that was one of these things that I had all this information from our research work and it was just this thing missing that defined as close to perfection as you can get. You know, what is the optimal client experience process? And every business has its own uniqueness. And so that it varies a little bit as to what unique is for each business. And it was when I saw that that business principle from Edwards Deming on maximum customer appreciation over a minimum variation that that's when I, I got the clarity to go, now I understand how we define 10 out of 10, which is truly appreciation. And when you look at that from... The behaviour, it's its just profound. It's unbelievable the difference you can have. And we've been very fortunate with the projects we've had where I have 
clients that have 200, 400, you know, multiple locations and they have the same marketing, the same uniforms, the same price, the same shop fit-outs, everything is the same except for the people in the store. And you can have completely different contrasting client experience scores and completely different revenue bases and margin bases. And, and working with these companies, it became very, very clear that the power in delivering a 10 out of 10 experience is absolutely phenomenal in protecting revenue and margin and so on. And the crazy thing is that very few companies can actually demonstrate to you what their defined 10 out of 10 process is. They're still all shooting for satisfaction. And so the key to this is client appreciation is a very unique space where any company that that has a degree of its client sitting there and our objective is to get at least 50% of the client base sitting in that space as a start. If you can get half of your market giving you 10 out of 10, you're doing a very good job and then you just keep tuning and tuning and tuning to get that score up. But once you've got that, it is phenomenal what it does to the bottom line. So there's there's a there's there's a such an underleveraged opportunity for most companies, and unfortunately for them, they have the right um, they have the right idea. They've just got the wrong theory. They're still striving for eight out of ten. So you're able to quantify it in a commercial sense. Totally. I mean that that must be powerful when customers see that given back to them. Look, it, it's to run some quick stats by you. Um, and this is on tens of thousands of people where we've mashed up the data. Those that score 10 out of 10 average 90, 91% on giving 10, they will definitely come back. Not 9, absolute 10. And the other 9% are usually uh, those you can highly justify. So, you know, it's a bit hard to sell a, a pram to a family when the kid's five years old. They're not coming back. Uh, we do Honda Power Equipment, and we had an old guy once who who gave a really high score and gave zero on coming back. And when we asked him why, he said, the, the lawnmower's going to live longer than me, so I'm not <laughs> coming back. But outside of that, when you achieve that optimal client experience, you own that market. You're untouchable. It's what we call unshakable loyalty. Because a lot of people talk about loyalty and loyalty cards and all this sort of thing, but that's not loyalty. If you've got to buy customers, it's not loyal. Unshakable loyalty means it doesn't matter who knocks on the door, they are not listening to them. They are sticking with you no matter what. And so when you look at that, you've got that 91% that you can put on your balance sheet that I've got them back next year. But they also refer, and when we talk about referrals, we say to people a specific conversation where they're actually basically done the selling for you. And that rates at four to one ratio of an eight out of 10. So eight out of 10s, for example, they sit at 48% on the certainty of coming back. So it's almost half which means you've got to keep advertising to fill up the, fill up the bucket. And, um, and of course, the referrals from the 10s are almost laid out. I mean, they're going to walk in the door. They've got absolute trust already and high expectations because they're trusting their friend. And the conversion rate's higher, where the 8 out of 10s are um, nowhere near as powerful referrals. So it, it, it's massive the difference it makes to companies when they get this right. And where we've been able to prove it is in those multiple locations where you can literally compare apples with apples, absolute comparative situations. And when you have those that get this this 
appreciation factor right, it's game over for the competitors. So it's it's so what you're telling us is we should all start to think about how we could try to own this space of the, the client appreciation because not only because mainly because of the commercial return from it. Well, look, that that's that's a simple answer. Mm. However, uh, it's like a lot of things in life. You know, we all know we shouldn't eat this and we shouldn't drink that, and we still do. <laughs> right? yeah. So. It's there's all these things we should be doing and people don't do it. And unfortunately, for a lot of businesses, these decisions are left to the bean counters and they look at the bottom line. They don't, they don't know how to measure loyalty. They measure goodwill. And if you base it just on transaction, which is what I call driving with a rearview mirror, you're looking at what happened. What we want to do is be able to forecast what's going to happen. And if you want to forecast what's going to happen, you've got to understand client behaviour. Otherwise, you're just reactive all the time. And a lot of companies, uh, it's it's interesting in the sense that we've been through a very good economy for quite a long time where people are so busy, they assume that well, we're flat out, we must be doing a good job. But one of the things that is, is showing up already in our data, and you know we're sitting here virtually the 1st of March or the end of, end of February, is that since there's been a little bit of shake up with the banks and all the stuff that's going on, there's already a shift in the value for money scores. So I'm I'm already noticing in the work we're doing where what the market's saying is they're far more critical now about how they assess getting bang for their buck. And of course, when you're flush, it doesn't matter. But when you're tight, you start thinking heavily. And, And this... When you get feedback on consumer sentiment, that sort of thing, they're being more selective, they're being more careful, and it's already showing up in how I value what I'm getting, which means the pressure's now on. So anybody who's listening to this, you've got to get clear that the pressure is now on to raise your standards, because if you don't, it's going to end up in how you're assessed in value, and a lot of companies are going to find themselves in a price trap because they can't get out of it. They've got to buy their way to... to uh, they literally got to buy their way to staying in revenue. Yeah. Well, that, that, that thing isn't quite a lot of industries the the, the pricing is it's literally a race to the bottom Absolutely. and the only value they're offering is yeah we're, we're cheaper than x and there's no real value in that not at all so i want to dig deep start to dig deep into some key things which stood out to me from the book and first one is this idea that you talk about the leadership team mm-hmm. have to be a custodian of the why mm-hmm. can you talk to listeners a little bit about that well this this is an area that i look at back to Buckminster Fuller's thing about adding value. If you ask a lot of people, you know, why do you do what you do here in this company? They'll, they'll just talk about the, the nuts and bolts, the facts of, oh, we sell stuff. But everyone is in the business or should be in the business of thinking it in the sense of we're in the business of client intimacy. We're in the business of relationships. We're in the business of adding value. So your leadership team, they must be absolutely committed to going above and beyond expectations, to shooting for that 10 out of 10 and achieving appreciation. And in doing so, they have to demonstrate that in their own behaviour first. So quite often, when we've been able to benchmark um, multiple locations and franchise groups and stuff like that, this is where you see the breakdown right at the top because they will run to the theory of satisfaction, near enough's good enough, well, that should be fine, that's close enough. Once you set that at the leadership level of the business, it filters all the way down to the front line. And the the key team in a business, if they don't know what the drivers are 
of brilliant service, then they're never going to be focused on or highly unlikely they're going to be focused on it. And so the, the thing with it is I, I liken it to if you go to someone's house and you take cleanliness as a sample and you have some people, their house is like a museum and other people's house, you you know, you wouldn't leave your dog behind there, but they think it's clean. So we all have our own standards of clean. We also have our own standards of communication. We have our own standards of service. And if you don't define what your standards of service are that are strategic and documented, then your leadership team, you're hiring people's standards of what clean is, for example. So you're going to hire, well, that's good service, that's satisfaction, that's 8 out of 10, uh, should be good enough. And if that's what you've got, then you're going to, you're going to struggle with you know, holding that high degree of loyalty. And so this comes right back to the recruitment process. And, you know, what I do with, with our clients is uh, we give them the drivers of client appreciation as part of the part of the trainings. Like, these are the things that are non-negotiable. This is our standard of communication. This is our standard of what creates trust. These are the standards uh, that people want from um, how, or how they define us being helpful to them and so on. And knowledge and experience and expertise, etc. Uh, if you don't set that up really clearly, then you're inheriting other people's past experiences, and we all know how that usually goes. Mm. I'm always fascinated with all the different terms around customer-client. There's satisfaction, there's experience, there's centricity. Uh, what is your view of, of client centricity? I link that to there's a lot of a lot of things going on at the moment with companies doing customer journey, customer client, whatever people refer to as, let's call them customers, uh, customer journey mapping. And so a lot of mapping out customer journeys is looking at the touch points and the things from an internal point of view, where the company sits down with the team and they map out all the touch points of what they know they do in their processes. The challenge is with that is they don't have an independent market perspective looking back on those processes. So the way the way we look at centricity is everything speaks to customer experience. Everything. So I, I often say to, to companies, uh, every single part of a job description, every document, every process in a business should have an intention that it adds value to the market. So a simple example, often what comes up in data is frustration in communication and often it links to accounts departments, accounts payable, accounts receivable, whatever it may be. And when I've spoken to the key people in the finance part of a business and you ask them, uh, explain to me what your responsibilities are, explain to me what your processes are to deliver great customer experiences, they look at you stupidly that's like, that's not my job. That's the salespeople. That's yeah. the account managers. That's the BDMs. Um, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not in charge of customer experience. And what I say to our clients is, if you want to, if you want to stuff up a relationship, nothing will wreck it faster than an argument over money. So, <laughs> you know, go overcharge them and see how it works. And so, what happens is that customer centricity has got to get all the significant parts of a business and be able to define what individually their roles and responsibilities are to be 10 out of 10 in their part. So it's it's the accounts department. And you know, anybody who's got a significant uh, 
part of their business where they do a lot of transactions, especially if they're um, you know, a lot of transactions with the same clients and uh, high value, especially. I'd encourage people to go have a look at just the tone of the emails. Because I've had clients when it's come up in their data and their feedback, and I've said, go and have a look at it. And I've had people just absolutely appalled where they've said, my God, I've looked at the way we deal with a challenge over an invoice. They don't even say hello or hi. They don't say thank you. They just go, bang, here's what we found in the invoice. It's due. Like, it's almost rude. And so this is communication. And so if you have your accounts department effectively being rude to people, it's it tells a massive story. And client centricity is already broken down at that point. You can do all the other fluffy stuff you like. But if I'm getting a bit of, bit of a smashing from your accounts department and uh, they've got an attitude about it, it... it Everything speaks. So that's basically saying we don't value your business. And so client centricity, finance is critical. Team is critical. Onboarding of team members. Um, Communication. What is the standards of communication? And that'll vary right across the business. If people are face-to-face, what defines great communication? Right down to dress code. If people are mostly phone-based, have you have they heard themselves on the phone? Because often when we hear ourselves back, it's like, oh my goodness, did I say that? And so you need to make sure that people are very clear in their communication. If it's written communication, what's the subject bar say? How's the closing part of the email? Are all the contact details there? Are they pleasant? Everything speaks. So communication is not just how we sell stuff. It's it's everything. Um, we've 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 found in mapping uh, customer journeys and so on, businesses that have uh, delivery as the final touch point. So they're you know delivering stuff in trucks, and when you talk to the guys in the warehouse and you say to them, "Tell us what your responsibilities are around delivering great customer experience," they say it's not my job. But they're the often the only human face-to-face connection with the market and they aren't taught great service. Yet the companies that see their delivery people as a significant part of protecting loyalty, they train them. They dress them well, the trucks are clean, and they're trained to do a lot more things than just deliver things in a box. And so you look at that part of client centricity and think, well, how do we make our delivery people 10 out of 10? And even to the point that, that I have a client now where in the past they would deliver things and the, the, the market would say, oh, look, I forgot to order such and such or this broke or can you help me with this? And the, the response used to be just, just call the warehouse. So then that person's now got another task to remember to do that day. They've got to get on the phone. They've got to wait on the phone. They've got to ask all this stuff. It's not giving, that's not service. Where now they adapt a, uh, a principle, the only thing they're allowed to say is, leave that with me, I'll take care of it, mate. Mm. What do you need? And then they got the order pad and they get in the truck and they ring the yard and, and, or, the, or the warehouse and they place the order. And then the, then the warehouse will call the client and say, we've got your order, it's on the next truck. And they go, oh my God, that is fantastic. You just save them all this work. And all they did was train the delivery people to do one more little task. 
and 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 give them this empowerment that that when you talk about the custodians of why or the custodians of service experience in these particular business models the delivery people are actually the custodians of the loyalty in many ways so when they're trained and they see their part as client centricity it changes the game mm. everything speaks you talk about this first 15%. Mm-hmm. I like percentages. I like numbers. Talk to me about the, the first 15%. First 15% is um, whenever I do this part of a, of a workshop, I always say, say to people, this, this is probably going to haunt you for the rest of your life. <laughs> um, this is also an Edward Stemming principle. And he talks about if things aren't set up correctly within the first 15%, then you're not going to get the optimal outcome. So it's making sure that if you take any delivery of any project, it could be a sales process, it can be delivering a website, it can be delivering a house, it doesn't matter what it is. You'll you'll have zero to 100%, 100% being successful completion and being paid for it. And as you reverse back that project, you will know of all these significant things. And the way I get people to understand it is I ask them to think of the, of the worst project or thing that they've done that that's the one that they just don't ever want to happen again. And, and it's one where they didn't get kicked out. They actually delivered it and got paid for it. So they got it kind of right at the end, but it was painful. And when you ask them to just timeline it even, they can look at it and say, yeah, at the 70% mark, we were over budget. Or at the 50% mark, we didn't have enough stock. At the 30% mark, we could see that we were under-resourced HR-wise. So they can look back on these disaster projects, and as they unpack them, they can see that they were way over that line. And then when if you ask them to talk about and pull apart that project, they, they love to repeat the one they like to tell people about is you know, what makes them so great, You know the most successful thing they've delivered. And as they unpack that project, at 80%, 70%, 60 50 40 whatever it may be, all the way through that project, they can tick the boxes to go, everything was organised, communication was tight, team was organised, suppliers were organised, whatever it was, it was organised. And so the Deming principle of this is that you've got to map it out and what's the first 15% of the process? And at that point, everything needs to be identified and planned for. So if you're going to require a certain resource at the halfway mark, don't get to 40% and order it. It's done in the first 15. And so when you look at 10 out of 10 outcomes, all they talk about is just this brilliance in the whole process. And when you look at these companies that have these extraordinary results, they can clearly articulate every step and stage of the process that's required. They've got it mapped out well. So the first 15% is a really critical process. And where it gets really tough for people is there's three layers. So there's the first 15% of the first 15%, which is 2.25. And then you've got the first 15% of the first 15% of the first 15%, which is 0.34. And people think it's nuts. But if you take an iPhone and 100,000 iPhones made, there is no way they throw 15,000 out. That's 15%. There is no way they throw 2,250 out. That's 2.25%. They may throw 340 out. Mm. So in, in lean manufacturing, six sigma, which is what you know, Deming stuff is the foundation of a lot of that. It is already back at that point. And often people say to me that, oh, you know, but that's ridiculous. We can't do that. 
I'm like, well, who's going to fly on a plane? I, mean, I was in Brisbane yesterday delivering uh, some work. And uh, I know I want the pilot who's got the bloody first 15 to the first 15 to the first 15 sorted out. I don't want the pilot going, oh, yeah, done this a few times. Let's see go. what happens. Let's see what happens. <laughs> um, so we have examples in our life, you know, medical, um, surgery, flying a jet. You look at Qantas, who've got the greatest safety record in aviation in the world. They have the first 15% right down to the decimal point. That's proven with their result. So people often think that that's you know, over the top and can't be achieved. And all they've got to do is deliver a box across town. It's just not thinking hard enough. And the thing with it is often the companies that achieve this, it gets back to that fundamental Buckminster principle of adding value. They know if they are going to add value at the highest level, they've got to take responsibility to get everything organised and get it way back fully um, coordinated and, and structured within that first 15%. Talk to me about this CX bucket, because there's a great graphic in here of a bucket with holes and cups and things, and so pity the listeners can't see it, but what, what is this CX bucket that you're talking about? Well, often uh, it's just referred to in, in conversation about, you know, got a hole in the bucket or something like that. So I actually... Um, when I do some keynotes and things, I've got two buckets. One's got holes drilled in it and everything else. And, and uh, I ask people, how much water will it take? And this is always a bit of fun. And I, So I've physically got a, a red bucket that's 10 litres and it's got holes drilled in it. And I hold it up and I say, how much water will it take to fill up this bucket? And it's unbelievable some of the answers you get. <laughs> people will go... How big is it? I go, 10 litres. I go, I'll take 10 litres. I go, no. I said, fill it up. Keep it full. You know, like fill it up. And then you know, people say, well, that'll depend on the, the flow of the water in. I'm like, will it? I'm talking about keeping this thing full. And one that I, I never really bothered to try and stress my brain to understand was I had a guy ask me what altitude is the bucket on. <laughs> right, okay. Well, I, Playing at a whole other level oh, there. <laughs> yeah, beyond me. But the main thing is, it's basically, um, the, the simple analogy is that if you can't fill it up. You've got to keep pouring water in the bucket all the time. So, and I've physically even done this with you know, outside pouring bloody water in the thing you know, mm. um, to prove the point. And so what I then switch it is, okay, let's imagine it's a cash bucket. So what's going in is cash. What's leaking out is cash. So if this was your bucket, what would you do? And people say, well, Plug up the holes pretty fast because it's leaking my money. There's $100 notes all over the floor. It's like, great. So now let's talk about your client base. Are you losing any? Are you churning any? And they'll say, oh, yeah, but there's an acceptable level. It's like, really? Why? Because a company that truly lives to the principle of client appreciation and adding value, the only leaks it has is what it's like the old guy who won't buy another mower or the family who won't buy another pram because the kid now goes to school. You're not going to, right? So there's an acceptable um, amount where clients naturally are attrition. But outside of that, if your commitment is to add value, there's no leaks in your bucket. So what we do is when we look at uh, research and so on, and you get these scores of 7 out of 10 and 8 out of 10, and they shop around with competitors, then you've got leaks. Because if you've got a, if you've got a customer bucket that's of absolute the highest integrity, they don't shop with anyone else. They only choose you. And so the thing with that is that uh, the way the metaphor works is that, you know, what would happen if you plug the holes and you keep the flow coming in? And then people will say, well, it'll overflow. 
okay, well, if you take that as a cash bucket and you plug the links and your marketing is still pouring in cash, what's going to happen to the bucket? It's going to overflow in cash. So then if it's full, it creates the ultimate opportunity for a business. The first thing they can do is increase their prices so they make more margin. Or the other thing is they start to select who they want to choose to do business with. And in business, I always think the greatest thing you can ever do is to sack dumb sack bad clients and pick the ones you want to work with and and know that you can hand on heart say I deliver great value and here's the price I charge for it and get full margin. So your customer bucket is is just using the metaphor of a bucket with holes. You, you just wouldn't do it. If you had a, the only bucket you can have, you'd plug the damn holes rather than keep trying to fill it up all the time. It's the same with cash, but businesses just don't do it. They actually, um, you know, I've had people say to me, oh, you know, we've got an acceptable level of, of churn. Why would you have a budget for churn? You're still pouring cash in the top to bring them in the front gate and you're leaving the back gate open. Mm-hmm. So so the customer bucket is, you know, that causes a bit of stress for some people because what I ask them to do uh, is to, is to an- honestly answer what degree of leakage they've got. And if people say to me, oh, you know, 10%, I'll go, well, how do you prove that? Because that's very high. 90% retention is incredibly high. How do you prove that? And they can't. Um, and then if you get other people that are a little bit more honest about it, and they go, well, I'm probably churning 30%. I've probably got my buckets leaking 30%. It's like, well, what do you think the best thing to do would be? Because what's that costing you? You've got more salespeople, more marketing, more lead generation. You've got more lag purely to fill up what leaked out because you didn't give them what they wanted. You basically gave them satisfaction. But if you know how to design and deliver client appreciation. You don't need to spend as much money on marketing. You won't have the same degree of lag in the sales process. You might not even need to have as many salespeople. So your front-end costs of client acquisition are massively lower. And your um, your actual lifetime value and your, and your goodwill factor is worth a lot more. Hmm. One, of the, one of the challenges I see with uh, organizations who are selling and trying to acquire more customers is that they're not always clear about this idea of expectations, mm-hmm. either what they expect of, of the customer or what the customer expects of them. You've got uh, you've one of your commandments is go beyond expectations. Thou shalt create real value. So talk to me about expectations. Well, this comes back to satisfaction. If you give people a high degree of satisfaction, you're just meeting their expectations. You've got to know how to go beyond expectations. And, you know, people talk about the wow factor and, you know, all this sort of thing. Well, that's what going beyond expectations are. When when you look at, for any one of us, when we look at what it is that has us truly loyal to the businesses we deal with personally, and, you know, when it... When it I always find it interesting in a, in a keynote where you can say to uh, to the ladies especially, you can say, look, um, I can get my phone out right now and you just got to tell me the postcode you're in and I bet I can find you a cheaper hairdresser. No question. I'll find you the ability to save easily 100, 200 bucks. Do you want the number? No, I always say no. I go, why do you pay a premium price when you know you can get it cheaper? And I will talk about, and this is a really good thing to test, so for anybody who's listening to this, is because they will talk about the things that go beyond expected. They expect a great hairstyle, they expect the colour, they expect 
the basics, otherwise they're never going back. But what is it that has them pay the absolute premium? And that is the experience. So when you just give people what they expect, you've defined it in a box of X plus Y equals Z, so to speak. You, you, you give me this, I'm going to give you that, and that's it. So you're just giving the expectation. But to go beyond that, you've got to find out what it is that your market uh, experiences as that going beyond. And so where companies have the best intentions and the wrong theory is they will sit around a boardroom and they will design their own, uh, using their own beliefs and their own experience, they'll design the ultimate customer experience process. And I've, I've seen this, where they will uh, show me what they've done and I'll say, great, and where's the client data? And they go, what do you mean? So they've actually spent a lot of time designing what they consider the ideal, optimal customer experience process and have never asked a customer about it. And you would be amazed at how often it happens. And so when you want to know how to go beyond expected, you've got to be able to ask your market, how did you find us? What did you like about us? And when they give you that 10, they're basically saying, I got so much more than I expected. And that's how you know how to define it. Do you think, to your point about they've never done the customer research, do you think it's because they're afraid to ask their customers? Do you think it's because... If they worry that if their customer says X and they think, oh, we can't do that, well, well, why do you think people are so reluctant to actually get this customer data? Part of it is that, which is kind of scary in a way that you could run a company and be scared to get the truth. (laughs) But, you know, you're absolutely correct. That happens. Um, Look, I think a lot of it is that we've been through a period where it hasn't been a concern for people. They've been busy, so it's all good. The other part of it is that they're using the wrong theory. So they've got the wrong data. And what they're getting is information that is giving them a misguided view. So, for example, a lot of companies will use emails and and digital to get feedback with. So they'll push out emails and that sort of thing. And, And I often ask, you know, who here gets requests for email feedback? And nearly every hand will go up. And then you you say, okay, now, who completes them? And Not many. Not many. And and globally, it's around 8 to 10%. So what happens is that the people that really love you will take the time to give you feedback because they appreciate you. And those that are really angry, that don't hate you, they'll fill them out and vent. And the other 90% in the middle, you don't hear from. So what happens is that when people get feedback, or they try to get feedback, they don't get much of it. So they'll get that 8 or 10% and they think, oh, we sent out, you know, we've got 200 clients and we've heard from 15 or 20 of them and I can't do much with it, so it doesn't work. So they actually try the wrong theory, best intention, and get a very poor outcome. And then the other problem is that uh, when they get the data, they don't know what to do with it. They're in the business of whatever it is they do, whether a dentist or, you know, an IT company, doesn't matter what, that's their specialty. They don't know how to analyse data. They don't know how to design um, ideal strategies, you know, customer service strategies, etc. out of having that feedback. So first of all, they don't know how to ask the questions. They use the wrong methodology. Uh, they don't know how to analyse it. They're too busy. And if they don't get what they like, they ignore it anyway. <laughs> so it's kind of, in a lot of cases, it, it's, it's doomed to failure. But the real smart businesses know 
that if you don't engage your market in designing the best experience, you, the best thing you've got to guess. Do you think that's why that at a personal level, when we do get this experience which exceeds our expectations or is really memorable, it's because the, on average the quality of experience is pretty poor? Yes. Australia, um, regardless of what we think, if you travel a bit, you'll soon see that we're not that good at it. Mm. And what what that means is that it is such an unbelievable golden opportunity for somebody who wants to have a crack at it because you're not really working off a high base to start with. And if you take the time to engage with your market and understand what it is that makes you different, then and, and, and be able to put that into design process procedures and so on and making sure that you've got all the right things in play and you're training people and have you what have you. Uh, the, the predictable outcome is going to be pretty damn good because if you if you find out from your market what it is that makes you extraordinary and you reverse engineer that and get that first 15% part sorted out, uh, you're unstoppable. Because you know your competitors haven't done it. Very few people do. In, in the book, you, you talk about the, this idea of these key heart drivers mm-hmm. as, as something which, you know, is a way of looking at your client loyalty. Can you talk to, to the listeners a little bit about these key heart drivers and, and what they should be looking for and what they should be thinking about in their own roles? Yes. Um, it, it's something that is really misunderstood. And it's happening in every business, every business. So the thing is, when we do analytics, and and this is stuff we've created, we define head and heart drivers. So heart drivers, for example, are you've got stock on the shelf, you know about your products, um, delivery's good, you're on time. They're they're basically process-head-driven things. And if your business... Uh, customer loyalty, client loyalty is based upon head drivers where I know if I turn up, I'm going to ask someone a question, I'll be able to answer it. You'll have stock on the shelf, your delivery's quick, your pricing's good, uh, I can bring it back if I need to. That's all nice. However, a competitor can say, we do all of that and we're cheaper. The heart connection is what creates the unshakable loyalty. It's the things that people define as helpful and what they define as friendly and even there it's splitting hairs but it's powerful because I can be I can go into a business and be very very friendly and not have a clue what I'm talking about and not be very helpful and then you can go and we've all had the experience of meeting someone in a business who knows everything and they're rude they're they're helpful but gee they're not very friendly about it so friendly and helpful are distinct and to put the two together is incredibly powerful then you've got communication and heart-based communication is that really good engagement when you know when you go into a business and that person in that moment is just there for you you are the only customer i have to serve right now how can i be of service how can i add value to you and when we get those experiences they stand out Mm. you'll love it and and then when they do that, 
They ask you questions, you'll answer the questions. You'll find you always spend more because you're willing to. So average sold sale goes up. And the other thing with it too, that when you are friendly and helpful and have clear communication and you take the time to understand my needs and can give you the right solutions, it is one of the key things that underpins trust because I know you, I can trust that you have my interests first, not your own. And so companies that are able to define what a heart connection is to their market, you can knock on the door all day with a cheaper price, you will not take the business away. And and this is easy to prove, and I, I ask this, this is like back to the example of the ladies with a hairdresser, you can get it cheaper. You know, we cut hair, we do this, we do that, we're on time, and they go, I don't care, I don't like you. I don't feel good. I don't have a good chat. The environment could be the colours. It could be the flowers. It's That's got nothing to do with head drives. That's all to do with emotion. So when companies are able to define, especially in their sale process, the things to communicate that are going to connect with that, that heart connection with their prospective market, they're going to get a much uh, rapid, uh, faster and more rapid uh, conversion rate because it's going to have that emotional connection where even sometimes, we, most of us have done this, where you've got two things on the table and you think, well, they're both great. Which one do I choose? You'll, it'll be an emotional decision to which one you choose when they're both hard to decide upon. That's the heart connection. Hmm. And I suppose that very much links to what I was going to ask about understanding your client's emotional connection, which hmm. you talk a little bit in the book. Hmm. So is there a particular process that you recommend people go through to try to understand that? Is it something which comes with time? What, what, what can we talk about there? Look, a, a, a quick way to do it. Uh, you know, my view is, of course, you do the process and, and plan it out properly. But if you want to get a really quick insight to how this works, the next time you receive a referral, and... And a lot of companies, they'll tell you their best marketing strategy is word of mouth. And terrific, right? And when I hear that, I say, awesome. Why? What particularly is it? And they'll give you their opinion. I go, oh, that's your opinion. This is somebody out there who's put their reputation on the line to support you. Why did they do that? What was it that you've done for them that they are so compelled to go out on a limb to support you? And they'll still give you their opinions. And this is where the opportunities are just massively um, stepped over. So if you look at your next referral and you ask them, say, look, awesome, thank you. Can you please tell me what was it that they said to you, particularly that, that had you come to us today? And you listen for what it is they're saying that their friend told them. And you'll find most of the time it's around you can trust them. They're on the ball. They'll look after you. They'll do the right thing. They won't necessarily be talking about the fact that they've got stock on the shelf and they've got good knowledge. It'll, it'll be the emotional things. And then so you take it another step further and you go back to the person who referred and you thank them for the referral and say, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for sending you know, Julian in today. Um, can I just ask you, you know, what, what is it that we do? What have we done that, that's, that's earned that respect? You know, we really want to understand this because we're so grateful for it. And they'll tell you. Mm. Do that 20 times and you've got a brilliant story to put into your sales team and share with, you, with your team because it is the 
absolute truth. Hmm. And if you just do that, you will learn so much. Hmm. As I was reading chapter nine, there was a there was a sentence which or statement really which which really stood out for me because uh, I, I'm always in the leadership programs we're running. I'm always talking about this idea. You, you, you're right. Last week's standard is no longer acceptable. So why is that the case? Well, um, you can have a ten out of ten today, and have a have a, an experience where somebody, let's say, they try you out because they're not happy with where they were going. And if you give them a ten out of ten today, and they come back, and a year later, it'll be a nine. A year later, it'll be an eight, because you've trained them what to expect. So if you design these processes and train your team and achieve that, which, which is you know, fabulous, but if you just go, well, we've done our job now. And it's like you don't go and practice golf once. I mean, I'm a shocking golfer, but I gave up. But, but I've got a, a mate who's an incredible golfer, and he's always practicing his putting. It's like, well, just because I could do it last, last week, part of the course last week doesn't mean I can this week. So it's kind of like looking at it from a point of view that if you believe you have the system where it is optimally today, anyone will tell you that they believe business is going to be tougher in two years' time than it is today. You know, this business is going to be easier or harder in two years' time, so it's going to be harder. Okay, if it's going to be harder, then how can you rely upon today's standards to give you that 10 out of 10? So we just worked to a mantra that last week's standards are no longer acceptable. And, and I use a... a, a in a, in a team session, what I'd ask is, um, raise your hand if you are committed to improving by 1% a week. Just one little improvement on communication, one little bit of improvement on getting clarity before you take the next step, just, just one little thing, 1% a week. And everyone raises their hand. And if somebody doesn't raise their hand to 1% a week, then you've probably got another thought to have about that person. But when people say to you, yeah, I can do 1% better each week, when you compound that across a year, it's phenomenal. It's an unstoppable business. And that's what I, I, I use to say, okay, well, if we can all agree to just a small improvement each week, we can also accept that last week's standards no longer accepted. And if you get buy into that, and I, I've, I've actually known of a client that has it on the wall, last week's standard is no longer acceptable. Mm. what's our 1% for this week and and it just ingrains it into the psyche of people and they go harder mm. you keep sharp that way I was really interested in your uh, chapter around avoiding the price trap because mm-hmm. price is what a lot of people talk to me about as being you know the number one deciding factor in why they make a decision and uh, I don't buy it mm-hmm. so, so what, what, how do we avoid the price trap well, if you're in a price-driven economy, and, and part, of, part of the challenge here is without realising that companies are setting themselves up because they're working to satisfaction. So if you're giving me what I expect, why would I pay more for that? So price becomes a commodity. And the way we define price is, uh, can I get alternative Sources of supply, yes. And is there an informed market? So you can go into JB Hi-Fi, for example, look at the price on the shelf, pick out your phone, 
in a matter of minutes, you've got who the alternative sources of supply are, and you can be fully informed on specs of the product, feedback, Google ratings, and who's selling it for what price. So you're fully informed and you're totally aware of your alternative sources of supply. If you can't go beyond that, you're in the price trap. And every company offers either a product or a service, some do both. You have to be able to define uniqueness. If you can't define uniqueness from an independent market perspective, which is what your market says to you, here's what 10 out of 10 is, here's what makes you unique. If you can't define the uniqueness, you can't help but find yourself stuck in the price trap. And, you know, there are legitimate situations. I have clients in construction and so on where they've got procurement to go through and it just comes down to bucks. But even so, the relationship will enable opportunity to work with variations and so on. So they still get their margin back because they're trusted and so on. But the thing with the price trap is that if you deliver satisfaction, you pretty much, and if satisfaction is your objective, so companies that don't realise it uh, are setting themselves up for a price trap because they're basically working to near enough, good enough, and you got what you expect. The real sharp ones, they know that the that, that appreciation is not a price-driven economy, it's a value-driven economy. And the way you can define a value-driven economy is you must know how to define define and deliver what we call unique transformational experiences, which comes back to the last week's standards no longer acceptable, the one percentage. Because if I come into your business and I get a great experience, it's like, yeah, that's fantastic. And I come back three months later and it's a little bit better. Wow, they remembered me. They looked this up save me time, whatever it may be. Follow me up with a phone call. I go back three months later again. They've tuned it a little bit more. They're constantly in a transformational experience mindset. We must keep transforming the experiences higher and higher and higher. That's what we, we um, educate our clients on, is that that's what appreciation is about. Appreciation is never finished. You know, our motto is when it comes to being number one, there is no finish line. So you've got to keep tuning and tuning and tuning. And, it, and some people think, oh, you know, that's outrageous. You can't do it. It's 1% a week. It's little things. It's As we all know, it's the little things that make the biggest difference. Well, mm-hmm. yes, it is. And it's damn well correct, you know. So this is where companies, if they find themselves where, and this is coming, you know, if we have a squeeze in the economy where, you know, there's, there's certain opinions of this, if that does come true, then there is going to be massive pressure on price. And if there's massive pressure on price, you've got to find a way to go beyond that. Otherwise, you're going to be discounting and discounting and discounting and you know, potentially going broke. So, you know, I was I was literally on this week, I was with a, a client of ours that's the fifth generation. It's over 104 years old. And they, they know what's coming in their market. It's squeezing. And they're like, and we're ready for it. And they see this as golden opportunity because they go, the pie's shrinking, but we're getting bigger slices. Mm. So when it runs again, it's just going to go whoosh. And so, you know, they have been around a long time 
and they really know that in a challenging economy, it is golden opportunity if you're prepared and ready for it. If you're reactive, you're going to get caught in the price trap. If you're proactive, you'll stay above it. Mm. So if people want to find out more about you and the work that you do, where should they go? Go to the website, security.com, S-A-G-U-I-T-Y.com. Uh, look me up on LinkedIn, connect that way. Uh, there's there's, there's uh, plenty of information on the website about what we do and so on, and if they'd like to have a chat, get in touch for sure. Um, the one thing I, I like to wrap these things up with is that really sort of defines this, this way of how to think about appreciation is uh, different isn't always better, but better is always different. And if you can define what makes you better and you make that your point of difference, then you'll achieve appreciation and you'll definitely stay out of the price trap. Well, on that note, thank you so much, Daryl, for being part of the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Well, that wraps up episode 67 of the Synergen Leadership Podcast. Another great author interview for you. I'd like to encourage you to head on over to the Synergen Group website and engage in the conversation with us. Tell us what you liked about the episode. Tell us who you'd like us to interview or tell us what sort of content you'd like us to deliver. And if you are an iPhone user, please feel free to head over to the Apple site and leave us a review. Greatly helps us build the awareness of the podcast. In next week's episode, I speak with Travis Jones, who is the founder and CEO of RPT Gyms. And it's a really interesting episode because Travis is a serial entrepreneur. So until then, love to hear what you think and happy listening.